second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them to the destruction he had threatened. Thank you, Emma. You know, some of you, uh, some of you golfers here are ready for winter to be done. I know the high schoolers are already swinging clubs inside, and I think, you know, the warm weather the last couple of days, edges of grass showed. I think some of you might have gotten out your clubs and were dreaming about, about golfing already. I don't play much golf, and I don't follow golf. I can't find anything more boring to watch on TV than golf. Sorry to all of you. But I do have one favorite golfer. My favorite golfer of all time is, is a Canadian golfer who played at St. Lambert's Country Club near Montreal way back in the 1920s. He was, he was the one back in the 20s who, of the foursome that would golf often, he's the one that owned the car. And so he would be the one that would drive them over these rough country roads back in 1920 to get to the golf course every week so they could golf. And these three friends, out of gratitude for him being the driver each time, decided to give Mr. Mulligan one free shot every time that they played around. The Mulligan is my favorite shot when I golf. And for those of you who don't know, a Mulligan when you're golfing is is when your friends are gracious to you and one time around when you shank your drive like I shank every single one of mine they say you know what just do it over again free shot they let you have a have a do-over like the first one never happened sometimes we need mulligans in life too don't we we all need a second chance after we've we've really blown it the first time in the story of Jonah, God gives Jonah a mulligan. He gives him a second chance to do it better and to get it right. Because Jonah blew it so badly the first time, right? If you were here last week, you remember his first time. He did everything wrong, right? He, he, he just about dies in the storm. Remember, he gets on the boat to try and get away from God's call, and the ship just about breaks up in the storm, and, and he just about dies when they throw him overboard into the water. He thinks he's going to drown. He gets swallowed by a fish, and he spends three days in the, in the digestive juices of a fish before that fish vomits him up on shore. What else could go wrong? How much worse could he do? The bar is set pretty low, right? And God comes and says, says, I'm going to give you a second chance. In fact, the start of chapter 3 that you just heard, 
starts almost exactly the same as chapter 1. Right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And he said, go to this great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. In other words, God teased it up for him again. And says, take another shot. Let's do better this time. Let's get it right this time. We'll pretend like that first shot never happened. And this time, Jonah heads in the right direction. He heads east towards Nineveh. That's a good start. But there's a, still a very significant flaw in Jonah's prophecy game here. God gives Jonah a second chance, and in return, Jonah gives God a half-hearted effort. Because he still doesn't really want to go there. In his heart, he, he doesn't want to be successful in this ministry. He doesn't want to give the people of Nineveh a chance to be saved. Really, honestly, he wants them all to be destroyed. He would love nothing better than to see fire rain down from the sky and destroy everybody in the city of Nineveh because the people of Israel hate the people of Nineveh. So Jonah does obey, but he goes reluctantly. He goes half-heartedly. He goes pouting, kind of like a stubborn little kid. You parents have had your kids. You as a you kids have probably done this. Remember the moments where, where, you, where your kids say to you, you can make me go, but I'm not going to have fun. You can make me eat this, but I'm not going to like it. You can make me go to church, but I'm not going to sing. Some of you probably had that conversation this morning. Well, Jonah says to God, fine. You can make me go to Nineveh, but I'm not going to try very hard. And he doesn't. He doesn't want to be there, and it shows. Right? Nineveh is a huge city. In that day, 120,000 people. That's huge. Right? And, and the Bible tells us that it takes three days if you're going to walk all through Nineveh. If you're going to cover the whole territory, it takes you three days. Well, Jonah, we're told, spends one day in the city. So he's not even close to seeing the whole city. He's not even close to, to making his rounds in Nineveh. And what he does during that one day is pretty pathetic. Right? Any good communicator who's challenged with reaching a whole city like Nineveh is gonna, is gonna be smart about it, I would hope. Right? You're gonna realize that you're one person and there's 120,000. So you're gonna, you're gonna have to recruit some people. You're gonna have to work the system, right? You're gonna go meet with some business leaders and see if you can work some ends there. You're probably gonna meet with the religious leaders. You're, you're probably gonna maybe even try and get a get an audience with the king, maybe the, if you can convert the king, then, then everybody's on your side, right? He doesn't do any of that. He simply walks into the city and starts wandering around, talking half-heartedly about God. Right? And, and the sermon he gives, the sermon he gives is sure to fail any preaching course. I know, because my first sermon did not pass, so I know bad sermons. I've written bad sermons. His is a bad sermon. Eight words long. That's all it is. Eight words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Where, where's grace in that message? Where, where's the hopefulness? Where's the call to repentance? Where's, where's the invitation to say, God will, will save you if you turn around? It's not there at all. 
Saying that Jonah gave a half-hearted effort, I think is being pretty generous. But to say that, that God did something good is way understating what God did through Jonah. What God did with that pathetic effort is awesome. And because God took those eight words, those eight words mumbled half-heartedly in a little corner of the city, and he brought revival to the whole place, right? The people who did hear Jonah believed, and those people told their friends, and their friends believed, and their friends told their friends, and they believed. And like wildfire, this, this message of God spread throughout the whole city until everybody's wearing sackcloth and ashes and repenting, and, and they're fasting, and word gets out to the king, and the king, he joins them. It says he stepped off of his throne. That's a way of a king humbling himself to let God have the throne instead of the king. And he puts on sackcloth, and he declares a fast for the whole city. In fact, he not only says that everybody needs to fast, but he says all your animals need to fast too. And they need to wear sackcloth because they were about to be destroyed too. So let's all repent. The whole city turns around for God. It's amazing. It's miraculous. It's spectacular. 120,000 people do a 180 for God. They lead their lives of sin and they turn towards God. And God sees what happens and he smiles because 120,000 people whom he loves dearly now love him. And his heart is filled with compassion and grace is given. And the destruction that was imminent is now averted. Nineveh is saved more in spite of Jonah than because of him. It's a stunning, really a surprising and shocking story. It's the story of a reluctant preacher. And even though I, I don't believe God gives us the story of Jonah to say, hey, everybody, be just like Jonah. I don't think that's the case. I do believe that there are some really key and important lessons for you and I to learn from here. So last week, we learned the lessons from Jonah in the storm. This week, we learned our lessons from this reluctant preacher. And the first lesson, the first profound lesson that you and I need to learn from Jonah is that the power to change hearts and the power to change lives, the power to change anything isn't ours. The power to make an impact and a lasting difference in this world is not yours and it's not mine. That power only belongs to God. Only God can change a heart. Only God can change a life. Only God can change a city. So when God calls you and gives you a purpose and a calling, a task and a job to do in your life, don't think that it's your power that's going to accomplish it. It's not. It's only God. It's his power that will do it. How much credit should Jonah get for this repentance in the city of Nineveh? Very little. He was one tiny, reluctant, unenthusiastic voice in the middle of a spiritual wasteland. He put forth the minimal amount of effort possible with a hardened heart. And yet through that tiny little bit of effort, 
God showed his awesome power. And that's the way that our God still works today. God absolutely loves to take the weak things of this world, the foolish things of this world, and to use them to show his power, to use them to show his wisdom. Right? That's what the Apostle Paul teaches us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He puts our lives, our efforts into perspective for us when compared to God's power. Right? Listen to what he writes. It's a long passage. He says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Doesn't that sound like Jonah? Through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And Paul goes on then to make this truth so personal and so practical for you and me. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, So God's plan is to use you and to use me for his purposes. He's going to use us in all of our weakness, in all of our foolishness, to change this world forever. To be the avenues by which God releases his power and his wisdom into this world. He's going to use you. He's going to use me. He already has used you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because he's used some of you to bring a friend or a neighbor into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. He's used some of us to raise our children and our grandchildren to know and love the Lord. He's used some of us to touch hearts and lives of people, maybe through a ministry like Alpha or Koinonia or Cadets or Gems or iClub. He's used some of us to rescue homeless families through family promise. He's used some of us to work for justice and righteousness in our neighborhoods, in our country, maybe in our homes. God has done great things through us. And when he does, Paul says the temptation is there to boast, right? To say, look what I did. Look what I did. And the truth is, no, we didn't do it. The power is God's. Paul reminds us we are weak. We are foolish. We are lowly and despised. We are the nothing in the process. But we are chosen by God. And God's spirit will come in us. And God's spirit will work through us. And his power to change a life, to change a heart, to change a community will be released through 
us. So if there's any boasting to be done, never forget, the power belongs to him. It belongs to God. You know, I'm, I'm personally reminded of that so often as a preacher. As the pattern is consistent, and I shouldn't be surprised by it anymore. So often, when I have a good week, and, I, and I'm done writing my sermon, and I think, this sermon's a home run. This one is great. It's going to be like the best sermon I've ever preached. And if there's a preaching prop that comes, I hope he comes this Sunday, because he's going to be impressed. Every time I feel that way, the sermon flops. It doesn't do anything. And every time that I walk out, every time I walk out of my office and I out and I think this sermon's horrible. I don't know. I didn't have time. It's not good. And usually I come out and that's when some of you meet me at the back and say, man, was that good. Man, I'm so thankful for that sermon. I think, what? And I'm reminded it's not about me. It's not about me. The power isn't in my words. The power's not in my preaching. The power is God's. And God can take the worst sermon possible and do good things. God can take the reluctant preacher and turn the world around through him. Jonah preached a pathetic sermon with a bad attitude. He took a half swing and he shot a hole in one. But you know what he did? He stood in and he took a swing. Right? He took a poor swing at best, but he took a swing. The power is God's, but the step of obedience is ours. That's lesson number two in this journey. If we're going to see the power of God work through our lives, and I hope you want that, then we've got to dare to step up and take a swing for God. And some of us haven't been used by God because we haven't dared to step up in obedience to him. We haven't had that conversation with a friend. We haven't built that friendship we haven't built that relationship with a neighbor because we're scared and we let that neighbor be. We haven't parented our children very well spiritually. We don't talk to them about spiritual things. We don't share our spiritual journey with them. We haven't stepped up to serve in ministry. We haven't stepped out in faith and, and given generously or prayed consistently or boldly. We haven't given any time or effort to God's call and invitation in our lives. Maybe because we're scared. Maybe because we feel foolish and weak. Maybe we feel ill-equipped for the calling that God has given us. We feel like, you know what? Yes, my neighbor needs to hear about Jesus. Yes, my kids need to, to, to hear more about Jesus. Yes, there's ministry that needs to be done, but there's somebody else better equipped than me. Maybe we feel weak, scared, ill-equipped for the calling God has given to us. And to those of us who feel like we aren't good enough for what God's asked us to do, who are scared, God says, perfect. You're exactly the person I can use now. 
you are exactly in the position that I want you to, to be in because I can use you to show my great power. I mean, look at all the heroes of the Old Testament. The ones that we hold up in high esteem and say, boy, were they bold, boy, were they, I wish I could be gifted like them. They're all broken. They were all powerless, right? God showed his great wisdom through Solomon, who was a bigamist. He showed his strength through Samson, who was a womanizer. He saved the nation of Israel through Rahab, who was a prostitute. He spoke his power through Moses, who was a stutterer and a murderer. He led his people to glory through David, who committed adultery and then killed the woman's husband to cover it up. God uses weak people. God uses broken people. God uses scared people. And he's ready to use you and me in all of our weaknesses as well. We don't need to be theologically trained to be used by God. We don't need to have our spiritual lives all put together and polished and know all the right answers. We simply need to dare to step up and take a swing. We simply need to dare to step forward in faith and let God release his power through us. The power is his, the obedience is ours. So yes, we may feel weak, we may feel foolish, we may feel frightened and overwhelmed and terrified. You may be nervous about what God has asked you to do. But if God has given a calling, if God has given a purpose, if God's revealed that need to you, then step up and take a swing. We need to step up and take our best swing and let God perfect his power in our weakness. Right, the apostle Paul took his swings. He took his swings in spite of all of his weaknesses. So he writes this, in 2 Corinthians, he says, God said to me, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then God's strength shows up. So know that God doesn't want to use you only when you're perfect. There aren't a whole lot of perfect people for God to use. There's usually just ordinary, sinful people like you and like me. And God wants to work through you right now just as you are with all your faults with all your foibles with all your fears he's going to give you the opportunities and his power will come through our obedience god has a kingdom purpose in mind for you i don't know what it is it might be it might be something big it might be something small it might be a neighbor who you're going to see when you pull into your driveway today and he's, God's going to say, I should really talk to him or her. It could be a conversation that you really know you need to have with your kids about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It could be a ministry that he's been asking you to serve in for a long time. And you've been saying, no, there's somebody else, God. I don't know what it is. 
But God has taken it and he's teed it up just for you. He said, I want you to take a swing. There it is. I'll provide the power. I'll, I'll make it work. Will you take the swing? Would you pray with me? Father God, you know our fears. You know our anxieties. We have to admit that we often do hear your call. We see opportunities right in front of us. And we're too scared to take them. We defer to someone else. Or maybe we're too comfortable in our lives and, and what you call us to would make us uncomfortable. Thank you that you still give us those opportunities, that you haven't given up on us, God. And thank you that we don't need to be good enough, strong enough, smart enough. We don't have to have all the answers because that's your job. When we think we need to be the ones to change a life, to change a heart, correct us, God, and remind us, no, that's, that's your job. You just ask us to, obedient, to be obedient, to open up the opportunity, to step into that opportunity and let your power go to work. So God, I, I'm confident that sometime today, tomorrow, this week, you're gonna tee up an opportunity for us, for each one of us. An opportunity to act justly, an opportunity to speak grace, an opportunity to be the hands and feet and voice of Jesus to someone, the opportunity to take a big step or small for your kingdom purposes. And we're gonna be tempted to walk away. Give us the courage to be obedient and to watch you work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.